Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. So we've taken a look at Bach from a few different angles, way back in episodes 24, 70, and 71. And today, we're Bach (laughs) to Bach. We're visiting him yet again, but this time to look at a perhaps darker time of his life. The time that Bach went to jail. So let's get right to it. Bach held several different positions in towns and courts around Germany. Our story today will focus on two locations where he worked, the court of Weimar and the court of Koten. Bach started his job in Weimar in 1708 as the court organist, and over the years he gradually worked his way up the ranks of court musicians. His first promotion was in 1714 to the position of concertmeister, which is the orchestral leader. This position was the second in command for music in the court, with only the Kapellmeister being ahead of Bach. At this time, the position of Kapellmeister was held by someone of little consequence today, Samuel Drisa, and Samuel's son, Wilhelm, also worked at the court. In 1716, Samuel Drisa passed away, thus leaving the Kapellmeister position wide open. Bach had already begun taking over many of the Kapellmeister's duties and seemed to be fully expecting his hard work to be rewarded by receiving the most honorable promotion to this position. But to his horror, he was passed over and Wilhelm Dreza, who was by far a more mediocre musician, was given the position. So Bach was stuck right where he had been concertmeister, answering to some upstart he didn't even like. So it was time that things changed. Apparently around this time, there was also a little civil argument between Bach's employer, the Duke of Weimar, and the Duke's nephew, and the staff and musicians of the two households were forbidden from socializing with each other. They had apparently been close before. This made the atmosphere at the court a bit strained, and Bach seemed to feel the vibe was just overall ruined. So he sent a request to Prince Leopold in the court of Koten. This was a small yet lively court, and the prince required a Kapellmeister. And luckily, Bach got the job. In August of 1717, Bach put in his resignation request to the Duke of Weimar. To his dismay, the Duke did not accept his resignation. But what was Bach to do? Here he was, now trapped in a job he hated, with a shiny new future ready and waiting for him. Well, nothing takes the place of persistence, so he pressed on and continued to ask to leave for three months. Finally, in November of 1717, it seems both Bach and the Duke had had enough of this whole affair. And though there is no definitive records of exactly what happened, it appears that Bach lost his temper and the Duke threw him in jail. The Duke's idea was probably that Bach would become repentant, and once freed, he would willingly continue to work for the Duke. But Bach was no marshmallow. He could hold a grudge well, and never even seemed to reconsider his job opportunities. While imprisoned, Bach was likely not in a jail cell, but rather on something more akin to house arrest. Though he didn't have access to a keyboard, he was allowed paper and writing implements, and did use this time productively to write the Orgelbuchlein, 
a cycle of organ chorale preludes. There is some thought that Bach may have made some preliminary sketches for his famous well-tempered clavier during this time as well. E.L. Gerber, the son of one of Bach's students, speculated that parts of the series sound as though they were written when Bach was, quote, bored, depressed, and without an instrument. However, most sources show Bach didn't start writing in earnest for the well-tempered clavier until a few years later in 1720. So, four weeks passed, and Bach and the Duke were still at a stalemate, Bach refusing to work and the Duke refusing to let him leave. Again, in a flurry of tempers, it seems Bach was finally freed dishonorably from the Duke's service. But not that he cared. He had gotten what he wanted and merrily made his way to the promise of a fresh start in Koten. He was indeed happy in Koten for six years, until it became evident that he would need to relocate partly for the education of his children. And the next post he won was in Leipzig, and the prince, though saddened to see his beloved Kapellmeister leave, didn't stand in Bach's way. So now let's take a look at the E minor prelude and fugue from Book 1 of the Well-Tempered Clavier. As we mentioned earlier, there's no concrete proof Bach worked on this while he was imprisoned. However, it is still very symbolic of his style around this time period. The work itself was first used as a teaching tool for one of Bach's sons, Wilhelm Friedman Bach, when he was just 10 or 12 years old. It was also on the cutting edge of composition, as it was obviously designed for a well-tempered clavier which can be thought of as a keyboard instrument that is nicely tuned between all notes of the chromatic scale, rather than having some keys be out of tune. And we've gone into that concept more in episode 94 about music tuners, so be sure to check that out. But for now, let's get into the music. As suggested by the title, this is essentially a two-movement work consisting of a prelude and a fugue. The preludes of Bach are quite musical, Many have been likened to dances or group songs. This E minor prelude seems to fall a bit into the dance category. However, it has also been likened to a sonata. Imagine that the upper line is being played by a solo instrument with the lower line being the accompanying keyboard. does sound very fancy and ornamented with its constant running 16th notes in the bass and almost constant in the treble, there are thankfully long-held notes to help guide the harmony. Listening from the beginning, you hear the tonic E minor laid out, and then on the downbeat of measure 2, the long note is F sharp. The harmony in the bass also changes, and suddenly we are in the key of B major, the fifth. What a lovely standard progression. But Bach also loves sequencing. Really, the Baroque style was entirely obsessed with sequencing. So when listening to this next section, you can hear the notes on every downbeat moving downward in the scale. Again, with the 16th notes really just acting as decoration in between the changes.
the bass on the downbeat and beat three of each measure, Bach is moving the bass line down by chromatic steps. actually has two sections. We now come to a section labeled presto. It is stylistically different than the first part in that the upper and lower voices are both playing furious 16th notes rather than there being any held notes. However, we actually start adding voices. At one point, Bach actually does separate the upper from the lower voice. Here, the upper voice plays first and is mimicked by the lower voice. This also gives Bach the opportunity to add long notes in the interior. And what we mean by that is that the pianist will be playing long, sustained notes, most likely with their thumbs, or their inner fingers when sitting at the keyboard, while the other outer fingers continue playing rapid sixteenths. Thus, we've yet added a third voice into this solo work. And eventually Bach has these bonus notes played by both the right and left hands, thus giving two new voices for a total of four contributing to the harmonic texture. a nice E major cadence, because major is apparently better to end on even though we're in a minor key, we move on to the fugue. The whole point of a fugue is to take a short melody called a subject and expand upon it. The rules of a fugue dictate the subject is first laid out nice and plain so the listener knows exactly what to follow through the music. minor subject features a nice upward E minor arpeggio followed by ever-widening downward chromatic intervals. Some analyses of the subject actually suggest that the most important notes are the high E at the end of the opening arpeggio and then the downward chromatics, which then disregard the repeated upper E's. In correct fugue form, this subject is then answered in the bass. Here, the bass answers in the fifth which allows the subject answer and the new upper material called the counter subject to mesh nicely and create harmony rather than unison. Unlike many of Bach's other famous fugues, this is actually just a two-voice fugue. So we are now basically done with the introduction section. Much like the later sonata form, after we have our melody introduced, there is then a development, or a modulatory section, in which the theme undergoes the composer's experiments and is changed in any number of ways. Any time the theme comes back is called an episode. You can hear many examples during the development of the episodes occurring. Just remember to listen for that first subject. Each one has its own little puzzles and riddles for scholars to discover. 
But what about a casual listener? What's so good about a fugue that you would want to just hear this music? Well, there's something to be said about the style itself. This is so quintessentially Baroque sounding that it really is evocative of the time period. So, if you want to get in the mindset to study other aspects of history and culture from the 16 to 1700s, it's nice to have this kind of music as a background setting for yourself. Though most people wouldn't think of fugue as hype music, with careful listening, they really do take you on a journey, especially this E minor fugue. The notes roll along so continuously, and subjects and modulations flow one into another without pause. It's so easy to get caught up in the performance. And though this is just a single keyboard instrument, those constant moving notes give a sense of ever-building tension that when we finally reach the end, it is a satisfying conclusion, just like any large symphonic work. This was just one of 24 preludes and fugues from book one, and then there is a whole book two with another 24. We encourage you to take the time to listen through all of them, even if it's just background noise. Though we already know Bach was a musical genius, you'll really come to appreciate why his employers never wanted him to leave. And just like Bach's employers, we love it when you stick around, dear listener. So if you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts, following us on Spotify or your platform of choice, and sharing this show with a similarly inclined friend, family member, or even a colleague. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Prelude and Fugue in E Minor from the Well-Tempered Clavier Book 1 was performed by Peter Bradley Fulgioni. You can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Music